Well, during this season of Epiphany, we've been looking at how to make Christ known. We've talked about not only knowing Christ, but making him known. Uh, Things which have been hidden are now being revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord, who is the Savior of the world. We have talked about knowing Christ, being, making him known. We've talked last week about the fact that, that, that David rejoices not simply that he knows God, but that God knows him and cares about him. This week we want to continue that by looking at um, the issue of, of not only knowing God and making him known, but making him known in his fullness. And I think that's the thing that... Um, it's probably kept me reading more this week than, than any sermon I've preached in a really long time because I have been uh, trying to, to see how the Lord wanted to direct my thoughts today because I believe that's important that we make Christ known holistically in the fullness of his, um, his revelation to us in the world. For some of you, this message will be like, well, yeah. Duh, you know. Uh, for some of you, it'll be like, hmm, I didn't know Alex fell off the, the wagon. What happened? And for some of you, it will be extremely challenging, I hope. Um, you need to know that, uh, that, that this for me is, has been an a, a issue or a, a desire, a growing seeking to understand this fullness of the holistic gospel and it probably has a lot to do with sort of my uh, evangelical um, white middle class upbringing that um, affects it. So just know that in mind. And, and if, if you're in one of those categories or if you're in another category, know that you can always come talk to me about this sermon. And, and boy, Abram's already had enough and he's out the back door. <laughs> and, and I knew Abram's on my side, so, you know, it kind of, that's... That, stink, that stinks for me. But anyway, but let's, let's get into it. You see, you see I, I've been really challenged by the Old Testament in the season of Epiphany. And you, you've heard me trying time and time again to draw in the Old Testament to have you understand, sort of to come at it. We, we came at uh, Jesus' fisher of men last week from a standpoint of the Old Testament from the Psalm 139. This week, I'm really struck by the words of, of Micah 6.8. Uh, I don't know if you caught it as, as it was read by Karen a little while ago, but, but, oh man, what does God require of you? Not old man, but oh man, what does God require of you but to do justice and to love kindness was our translation. I prefer love mercy and walk humbly before your God. This is the the, the cry of Micah, and I don't know about you, but when I hear it, 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 it resonates with my spirit, and I say, yes, Lord, this is what we should be about. This is what servants of Christ should be about. We should be about doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly before our Lord. But you need to understand that, that as even as uh, Micah was writing it, he was... Um, he was writing it in the, in the context of God's judgment over his own people, Israel, because of their lack of doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly before the Lord. 
don't know if you caught the context here. Sometimes these Old Testament prophets are hard to get our minds around. But basically the, the scenario is that God is calling Micah to, to prophesy almost the scenario of a courtroom. And here's God who is the prosecuting attorney. And God has brought in Israel, his people, to stand trial before him. And he's called the mountains and the hills to be the witnesses. In other words, the ages, the the whole of creation to give testimony and to be present in the courtroom as God brings his charges against his people. And he begins to talk about what he's done for them, how he's brought them out of Egypt and cared for them in the desert and brought them into the land of promise. And he's, he's overcome wicked imperial kings and, and rulers who would have destroyed them, people like Balak that was mentioned in the passage. And yet, what is the indictment against the people of God? They've not done justice. They've not loved mercy. They've not walked humbly before the Lord. In the context, what Micah says is that they've brought all these offerings, this incredible amount of, of, of animal sacrifices and and enough olive oil probably to, to make a, you know, to, to fill a swimming pool. They have, they've brought tremendous amounts of offerings, and yet God says, I'm not pleased with your offerings. I don't want your sacrifices. What I want you to do is to execute my justice and love mercy and walk humbly with your God. Now, as I think about our own modern context, you know, Loving mercy is probably not so hard to swallow. It's, it's a little easier. Mercy ministries, those who care for the poor, the sick, the, the marginalized, the outcast. Um, it's usually when we get into talking about justice that we get into trouble. Because when it comes to justice, we're now talking about changing things so that systems are created so that justice actually as one of the, the Old Testament writers says, will flow down like a river. And justice gets into politics and politics, you know, we were taught never talk about politics and religion, right? You know, it's kind of the way it was. And yet, this, these issues of justice overflow the Old Testament, not only here in Micah 6, 8, but all throughout Isaiah 1, chapter, six, uh, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Jeremiah 7. If you truly executed justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed the blood of the innocent in this place, He goes on to say, you will have your father's land forever. Amos 5, therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him. And he goes on and talks about all that they've done that's evil in that time. He says, hate evil, love good, establish justice at the gate. Amos 5, 21 through 24, but let justice roll down like water and righteousness like ever-flowing streams. Hosea 6.6, for our desire steadfast love, mercy, not sacrifice. And finally, Zechariah, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourners, the poor. Do not let none of you devise evil against 
one another in your heart. But Zechariah says, but they refused to pay attention and turned to stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. Issues of justice and call for loving mercy is overwhelmingly abundant in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, if there's one thing that calls God's people, both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, to go into captivity, it was their failure to live as their God and do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly before him. And God says through Micah, and I don't care about how many times you're in church. And I don't care about how great are your sacrifices. You can't buy me off. What I'm looking for is a people who, like me, will show justice and mercy and walk in humility. Why is it that it seems so foreign sometimes in the Christian church, particularly in the Protestant church, to talk about issues of justice and to to not have to constantly explain what you mean and what you don't mean. I, well, just to give you a little bit of context, it, it's something that's relatively new in the history of the church. Um, one of the people that I, I just cling to with issues like these are John Stott. John Stott was an Anglican uh, priest and theologian. It lived in England, uh, was now with the Lord. All Souls was his parish, which is why All Souls Jacksonville is named after uh, that. And, and, uh, but Stott weighs in. This is a book that he wrote back in the 90s, Decisive Issues Facing Christians Today. Most of these issues, are, by the way, are still pertinent today, uh, you know, years later. But, but Stott talks about the, the understanding from a Christian standpoint that people are body, soul, and live in community. Therefore, he defines it as a body, a soul in community. It's kind of a run-on word there. And because of that, Stott says, we're concerned for the total welfare and the being of the soul, the body, and the community. And so that leads to practical programs of evangelism, relief, and development. In other words, moving towards issues of justice. Listen to how he goes on. Motivated by love for human beings in need, the early church went wherever preaching the word of God because nothing has such a humanizing influence as the gospel, the good news of Christ, that Christ has conquered evil and sin and death. Later they founded schools and hospitals and refugees for outcasts, refuges from outcasts. Later still, they abolished the slave trade and freed the slaves. They improved upon the conditions of workers in mills and mines and of prisoners in jails. They protected children from commercial exploitation in the factories of the West and from the ritual prostitutions and temples in the East. Today, they bring leprosy suffers both the compassion of Jesus and modern methods of reconstructive surgery and rehabilitation. They care for the blind and the deaf and the orphaned and the widowed and the sick and the dying. They come alongside drug addicts and they stay with them during traumatic periods of withdrawal. They set themselves against racism and political oppression and they get involved in inner city, in the slums, and the ghettos. And they raise protest against inhuman conditions in which so many are doomed to live. 
They seek in whatever way they can to express their solidarity with the poor and the hungry and the deprived and the disadvantaged. Stott says, now, he's not claiming that all Christians at all times give their lives to such service, but sufficiently large numbers have done so to make it a record that is noteworthy. If you're, if you're a young person in this room, and there should be more of you, but there's a few of you, you need to know that this is your heritage. This is the heritage of the Christian church. All the social um, welfare system, all the, the, the work for the poor and the disadvantaged, it all has its foundation in Christians who came before us and generations before us. And they, they worked hard for those things. And you need to know that's a part of your heritage. But why is it oftentimes that it seems as if, and I'm particularly talking about the Protestant evangelical church, predominantly white, why is it that it seems as if that's such a foreign concept to us? Well, it goes back 100 years ago. Can I give you a little history lesson? With all due respect to the history PhD that's sitting behind me, um, there, let me it's just a, a history lesson a little bit because what happened about a hundred years ago in American culture, back before the turn of the last century, really, is that there was a, a huge split within Christendom. You see, the 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 Orthodox Christians were at the late 1800s were feeling very persecuted because of sort of a, a liberal theological bent that came out of Germany in the mid-1800s and began to pre- kind of press upon Orthodox Christianity and began to cause them, began to talk about things like that Jesus wasn't born of a virgin and that, and that he, in fact, wasn't crucified for the sins of the world and, and, and just began to attack all the fundamental principles of, of what we would think of as creedal Christianity, Orthodox Christianity. And so, Orthodox Christians, a lot of them, particularly Protestants, the Catholics did a better job of not retreating, by the way, just to give them kudos on that. But for most Protestants, we, we retreated 100 years ago. And, and there was a series of tracts that were written around the turn of the century, and it, they were called the fundamentals of the faith. And it's where we get the word fundamentalism today, but it had very little to do with fu- modern fundamentalism. It had to do with the core beliefs of Christianity and I think you would probably pretty much all agree with all of the fundamentals that they talked about. But in the process of feeling under attack, they retreated from the arenas of the social good and the engagement with issues of justice and mercy that I just described from John Stott's book. About the same time... uh, a movement arose within Western Christianity, particularly in the United States, called the Social Gospel Movement. And this was probably most popularized by a guy named Walter Rauschenbusch, who was a a Baptist pastor working in inner cities and overwhelmed with care and concern for the poor. And he, he just didn't see America working for a lot of people, and he began to write about the social injustices and began to formulate this word that became synonymous with this movement, the social gospel. 
And, and it really was taking very seriously, trying to take very seriously Jesus' words in the Beatitudes, which, of course, I just read a few minutes ago, and we're going to get to in a moment. And Rauschenbusch began to try to tr- see how the kingdom of God that Jesus talked about maybe wasn't necessarily a future kingdom, but was a present kingdom and was something that could be a way of restructuring our own society, almost like a, 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 a communism of sharing of all things and a betterment of all humanity and begin to talk about it being something that we as human beings could achieve on our own. That Jesus had given us the law, he'd given us this new law, and that we should just act it out. And you can kind of see where things went. You know, the, 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 the fundamentals of the faith were under attack, so the, the conservatives retreated back into the fundamentals, and, and this, this social gospel arose and began to, to sort of think about how do we deal with the, with the, the oppression and the marginalization and all the, the issues, the ills of society, and out of it came this split so that the evangelical orthodox didn't want to do things of social gospel because for fear they'd be criticized for abandoning the gospel, the truth, the words of Christ, the, the command of Christ that, that we should preach that he was crucified and that he rose on the third day, that, that he died for the sins of the world. And so there was this, this separation, this, this bivocation of the, the gospel into social action and proclamation. And you and I, every person in this room, no matter what your age we're, we've, we're all living with the aftermath of that, that split. Now, that's the bad news. And, and, and you need to know that. And if, you're, if you've somehow escaped that, you need to know that when you talk about social gospel, when you talk about social justice and an orthodox evangelical church, there are certain people who the hair on the back of their head starts standing up, you know, and they get really nervous. And they start going, oh my gosh, now Alex has gone liberal. You know, he's finally, this is where it happens, right? This is where it, it turns over. Because of this severing that occurred really about 100 years ago. Now the, the joy of my heart is that months ago we had our brother Eddie sitting back there get up and talk about what the International Justice Mission and none of you ran out, none of you threw things at him or me because we talked about justice. But it's justice for those people over there, you know, some other place, which is a little easier to, just, you know, we're not. But, but there's, a, there's a real movement within Christianity, I think, now of trying to bring those together. As a matter of fact, again, if you're one of the young people in this, in this, in this congregation right now, you are going to be a part of what I believe will be a bringing back together of these things. So that it won't be seen as contrary. It, that it'll be seen as the fullness of the gospel. That we, that we understand people are body, soul, and that we live in community. And so all of those aspects are good news of Jesus Christ. That's the full, holistic gospel message we bring. You see, there, there are now, what, what happened, the, the sort of the, the philosophical inheritors of the, the, the Rauschenbusch and the social gospel movement, those people have moved on beyond Christianity at all. They don't even pretend to be Christian anymore. And they live as secularists in our society, still doing moral things based upon Jesus' commandments, but 
looking down on Christianity and thinking that they have the moral high ground. Because we've abandoned issues of justice and we make mercy ministries second class because we think it hinders the good news of Jesus being called forth when in fact it's the fullness of the good news. Amen? And yet we've been robbed of it. Now we're hopefully living into a time when it's going to be restored. Now, why do I say all that? Well, I say all that because you need to know as your pastor that when I get up here and I talk about things of justice, there is angst in me. Because I've been raised in right smack dab in the middle of it all. And it's hard to overwhelm, overcome those sort of preconceived notions people have about these things. And it gets political, right? Justice becomes issues of politics. And the things we were told not to talk about in public places is religion and politics. But I'm here to tell you that's, that's, not, <laughs> that's not coming out of a gospel, holistic gospel worldview. That is, that is something that's been put upon us. Mainly because of this bifurcation that took place 100 years ago. So when I read the Beatitudes, well, let me start by saying when I've read the Beatitudes years and years ago, I always tried to make them about my own personal spiritual growth and advancement. And I actually had somebody in college who told me that this was, there were levels of growth, that you, you, you first were poor in spirit, and then you became a mournful, and then you became a meek, and you know, sounded pretty good, but I don't think that's really what it is. <laughs> I don't think it's a stepladder. I believe it's a holistic look at what Christ expects his followers to look like characteristics of citizens of the kingdom of God will exemplify these things. Not one day in the sweet by and by, but will begin to live into them in the here and now. Not completely, not without failure, obviously not without sin, but that we will begin to emulate these things. This upside down set of values that Jesus puts forth will in fact be the, the, the characteristics of those who carry out the work of the gospel holistically throughout the world. The Puritans had an old saying that I, I don't know why I never heard this before, but I, I love it. The, the law, the law of God, the Old Testament law, God's call to Micah to say, this is what you're to do. You're to, you're to do justice. You're not to be self-centered. You're, you're to do what's right for all. You're to, you're to love mercy and you're to walk humbly. When you can't do that, it's the law, it's what, what the Puritans said was the law points us to Christ that we might know salvation. In other words, we see the law and we can't do the law. And then, and then we're pointed to Jesus. And yes, you can't do the law. You, you, you are incapable of keeping my law. And we go to the cross. But the Puritans had a second saying, the second part of the phrase that said, Christ 
points us to the law that we might be sanctified. In other words, that we might be holy. The law points us to Christ that we might have salvation. Christ points us to the law that we might have sanctification. You can't read the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount unless you understand that what must come first is that you meet Christ the Savior and the Lord of all. And you repent for the kingdom of God is at hand and you embrace Christ and you understand that salvation is a gift. That the kingdom is, see, Rauschenbusch had it all wrong. He thought it was something we could make. We could build in this world the kingdom of God. No, the, Jesus said the kingdom of God must be inherited. It must be entered into. It must be received as a gracious gift. But once we've received it, Christ points us to the law that we might be sanctified, that we might learn to be holy. Have you ever met a person that could tell you the gospel, could tell you about how to be saved, like, man, like the back of their hand, but they were the most immoral crookedest, you know, unreliable so-and-so you ever met. Well, that's a person that's been raised in this bifurcation of the gospel, that somehow what we do in this world has absolutely nothing to do with our eternal salvation. When in fact, Christ calls us to be in the world and not of the world, to be the salt of the earth, to be the light of the world. How do you do that unless you're actually engaged with those things which he says are like him, namely justice and mercy and humility? Well, we can hardly walk through all the the the, the beat attitudes today, but... But just to quickly to recognize, blessed means to be happy in the Lord, to be happy with God, to be poor in spirit. Michael Green says to be poor in spirit is to have hope only in God because you're so beaten down and, and, and rubbed into the ground by, by the issues and the politics of the day. Amen, right? I, if that, I, mean, I was like, that is me, Michael. Thank you for saying that. The poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, who see the suffering of the world. And don't turn a blind eye. But take it to God in prayer and then find ways to roll up their sleeves and get involved. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Who want to see true goodness. And don't mind that people call them Pollyannas or... Don't, you don't live in the real world, but they're going to be a person who seeks righteousness. They hunger and they thirst for it. Blessed are the merciful. Merciful. Who show mercy. Who, who don't give people what they deserve. Who don't batter them when they're down, but, but extend love and grace and mercy because that is what's been extended to them. Blessed are the pure in heart. Unalloyed unadulterated, not seen through the, the, the lens of a particular political party or, a, or an economic or a social group, but rather seek to know and see God pure of heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. You are happy in the Lord when you're one who tries to reconcile those who seem irre irreconcilable. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted. If you do these things, Jesus said, you will be persecuted. I may be persecuted before I leave today. I don't know. That's why James is celebrant. And Bob's up here to serve communion so I can run out the back door if I need to. You see, to, to live out of these kingdom characteristics is to disturb the, the status quo. It's to upset the apple cart. You think Jesus wasn't political? Jesus was killed because he said, I am Lord and Caesar is not. That is about as political a statement as you can make. Blessed are those who revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Your reward in heaven is great. So they persecuted the prophets and those who were before you. On my account, not just not just being persecuted, but being persecuted on Jesus' account. And, and let me say to all of us, the issues of justice are God's justice, not our idea of justice. I mean, the word justice has been co-opted completely and taken into all sorts of places. We seek to live out of God's justice. And if we're going to be persecuted, we want to be persecuted for his name's sake, not for our own stupidity or blindness. Carl Henry put it this way, the living God is the God of justice as well as the God of justification. No longer can we let those who stand outside the church think they have the moral high ground. We are called to care for the poor and the marginalized, and the vulnerable, and those who need justice. And sometimes that will mean that we have to wade into issues that seem political. Now, does that mean I'm going to stand up here and tell you who to vote for? Absolutely not. Am I going to endorse a political party? Never. Be careful of being co-opted as a believer into one or another political party. They want to use you for their own purposes. I know, I have a politician in my family. Be weary. Be weary, but there will be things that will be of a political nature. It's, it's impossible to avoid. Because it has to do with justice, the justice of God, and it has to do with living in community. It has to do with the total person, body, soul, and mind next week speaking of which next week I'm inviting a a deacon of the Anglican Church a woman by the name of Georgette who's going to talk about justice for the unborn something that we've never really done although Bishop Menz was pretty outspoken last year in his his sermon she's not going to talk about who you should vote for politically or that you should vote for candidates that are going to vote this way on the issue of abortion, or that way on the issue of abortion. But what she's going to talk about is justice for the unborn. That is a politically charged idea, but I believe it's also an idea of justice. Just like 
racial reconciliation, just like the needs of the poor, just like issues of, of mental illness and how do we deal with it in our study, and all the virtual other things that we can talk about and need to be talking about because it presents the holistic gospel to the world. Well, what do we do? Well, first of all, by the fact that you've stayed in this room, you are willing to engage with the problem. You're willing to hear, and, and I believe that you're beginning to understand and appropriate what Jesus says when he says, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who, who, who are pure of heart because you, you desire to see God's kingdom come and you want to be a part of making it come, helping it come, but you know it's from him. That's what we've got to be able to do. That's why we, that's why we have International Justice Mission speak, and why we have Gospel for Asia come and speak, and we hear about the needs, and we, we, we have people like Fred Cantrell, who just happens to be one of our chalice bearers, who works with the, the House of Hope, working with ex-prisoners and helping them rehabilitate and re-enter society, and we're involved in, in Littlewood Elementary School, the public school system. We want to support and encourage and uplift the public school system. We want to be involved in every aspect we could possibly be involved in if it has to do with justice or mercy as we do it we seek to live and walk humbly before the Lord so continue to be challenged and when it becomes politically uncomfortable for you come talk to me about it or talk to one another about it don't talk about me with one another but again, for those of us that go, uh, uh, Alex, you're getting close to the edge. Remember this, 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 this separation that, that happened. And it's the holistic gospel the Lord is calling us to proclaim. Secondly, find a particular area to get involved in. One of my, the feedbacks on my Rector's review said that perhaps we should look at paring down some of the ministries we're involved in and be more, more, more focused in our approach to ministry. I hate to tell you guys, but that's not what John Stott says. Stott says by virtue of, of the fact that we are a congregation, it gives us the opportunity for individuals of us to all be involved in a plethora, a, a myriad of different issues that call for our attention. Issues of places where we can do mercy and do justice and love mercy. If someone else isn't jazzed about your particular area, don't be offended by that. You see, the, the, the goal is that they would find their area and those who would be passionate about that and that you might be working with the, with the former prisoners and you might be working in a literacy program down at Gainesville Community Ministry and you got, might be working with the Homeless Center at Grace Marketplace and you might be working with, with Littlewood Elementary to try to, to raise education, the level of education and to, and to mentor young single-parent children. But together we come and we get we get about the whole work, about proclaiming the whole gospel. And this is what we have to do. If, if other places can punt it, we have to do it here because we live in Gainesville. 
We live in the shadow of a huge university that, that looks down its nose at us and says, we have the moral high ground, Christian church. Because we care about these issues of justice and mercy. And you don't. You're self-centered. You're self-righteous. You only care about getting to heaven yourself. And we've, we've given up that ground, but we're taking it back. I could talk about this for days. I have read so much this week. I'm going to stop. We be bold to hear the problem. We become those who mourn and seek purity and hunger for righteousness. We find our place and then we continue to come together that we might mutually encourage each other. The whole gospel to all people. Is it messy? Is it political? Is it difficult? Does it make us uncomfortable? Absolutely. But that is the very place that Christ came. Are you challenged by the Beatitudes? Of course. But I long to see Christ worshiped, served by not only the people in this room, but by thousands of people outside this room. Let me pray. Father, we, we want to be a part of what you're doing, of your redemptive work. Lord, give us grace when we hurt each other. Give us boldness to step into some places that might seem a little uncomfortable for us. Oh, Father, let us never neglect or lose the gospel, your good news. Lord, it is only because of your gracious gift that we can proclaim your holistic gospel. And so we pray, Father, that you would guide and direct us in the days and weeks and years to come. We give you all glory and honor and power. In Jesus' name, amen.